Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, everybody. Daniel from the Cannonball here, uh, co-host of your favorite uh, quarterly literature podcast. Uh, apologies about the surfeit of episodes lately, but we have a great raft of episodes coming up all about lyrical ballads. Uh, so we're going to be releasing those pretty close, uh, close together to each other to kind of hopefully make up a little bit for our rather uh, reduced release schedule lately. But in the meantime, hey, if you're waiting for more Cannonball, the best thing you can do is check out our sister shows on the Agora Podcast Network, exactly the kind of shows that an intellectually curious type of person of the sort who might listen to the Cannonball would really enjoy. And I would particularly urge you to check out the Bohemican Podcast from our colleague Pete Coleman. It is your one-stop shop for all things Czechia and Bohemia. It is a wonderful podcast delving into all sorts of topics in the history and culture of uh, the Czech lands and the Czech people. So please check out Bohemican Podcast and enjoy as uh, your uh, favorite co-host and mine, Claude Myron Guzer, and I dig a little deeper into lyrical ballads. Welcome to the Cannonball, a podcast attempt to read all of the books in Harold Bloom's list of the books of the Western canon. Uh, sorry it took so long to get back, but we're back, and we're back with lyrical ballads. This is Claude Myron Guzer, and with me as always is my co-host Daniel Doherty. Daniel, how you doing, man? You feeling rustic tonight? I am I am feeling rustic. I'm feeling bucolic. I am feeling uh, as though I am traipsing in an idol. Uh-huh. Uh, really, I mean, just the whole shebang. Yeah. Yeah. The whole, are, the whole thing you... just feels very, very, uh, Georgic. Mm-hmm. It feels very, uh, I already said bucolic. I'm running out of uh, vocabulary words. Well, are, are you bearing witness to any dispossessed people? <laughs> Buddy, you better believe I am, <laughs> I am here to tell the story of enclosure and uh, industrialization and to set the stage for J.R.R. Tolkien's hobbits. <laughs> All right. So our plan is 
to take on uh, the bulk of the 1798 lyrical ballads. We did the the Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner already, and sorry we took like a longer hiatus than we intended. We thought we could just kind of bang this out, but we're living in unprecedented times, uh, and they're very busy unprecedented times, and these times are asking a lot of us, so our apologies. Can you, f- can, can you feel the angst? <laughs> coming through. <laughs> but uh, what, what our plan is, is to do everything in the 1798 lyrical ballads tonight, except for Tenturn Abbey. So we're going to proceed after, like everything after Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, and then everything up to Tenturn Abbey, because I think Tenturn Abbey needs its own uh, show. It needs its own mm-hmm. episode. Because it is such a, a huge chunk, though there are, let's call them intimations of Tintern Abbey sort of scattered throughout, um, lyrical ballads. Mm-hmm. Now, we, we've already sort of discussed the weirdness of starting with Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. Like, it's, it's such a distinctive and strange and bizarre performance. Though, looking back, like having read the rest of the book, like in a concentrated way, it, I take back some of what I said. There's a <laughs> lot in this, this collection that really is goth as fuck. Um, yeah, it, yeah, that's very true. <laughs> it, it still plays with the supernatural in parts. Mm-hmm. It still plays with some of those goth tropes. I mean, particularly Coleridge. Uh, in, in some of the, the sections that he took from, uh, dramatic works that he was using, it mm-hmm. still plays in a lot of the supernatural gothic tropes, but it, it really sort of filters throughout. So you've got the bucolic sort of as you, you advertise and you've got that sort of tr- a kind of natural transcendentalism, mm-hmm. like Wordsworth will sort of pop it in here and there. Um, but you've also got like these, these darker tones coming throughout and this sort of, I guess what you would call poetry of witness. Yeah. This was really kind of a, an interesting read because I've, I've read these poems individually scattered throughout, um, anthologies. I, I think my first major exposure to lyrical ballads and to Wordsworth and Coleridge came in an undergrad uh, romantics class. And I, I remember having read all this stuff. And in grad school, I went back and re-encountered everything, you know, with every poet in their own place, uh, a giant selected of Wordsworth, a giant selected of Coleridge, so on and so forth. But I never read all the poems together in one place in this way. And yeah. it, it was kind of surprising. You know, I, I sort of knew what I would be looking at to a degree, but it was surprising what was there, but also what wasn't there. There are some heavy hitters that I think get added to the later editions. And it was sort of surprising to see that some of some of the stuff that I was expecting, particularly the, the, the transcendental stuff, it doesn't quite get fleshed out here. It was really sort of interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's very, um, it's oblique, yeah. uh, in a way it's, it's almost kind of, well, I mean, I, I don't know if this is the term to use, but it's, it's sort of transcendentalism haunted rather than, mm-hmm. uh, kind of upfront. Yeah. I, I, except for 10 turn Abbey. <laughs> Right, right. <laughs> Which is yeah, pretty explicit. Sort of like the glaring right. omission there. Yeah. 
But it was really sort of fascinating to see how their project was proceeding. So after uh, Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, we get this fragment. It's another fragment from Coleridge. It's the foster mother's tale where it's a, a piece of a play uh, that he sort of excerpted out. And there's another piece of that same play that he excerpts out. And this plays on, it's sort of like a narrative told through the dialogue between a mother and uh, a, a girl and her foster mother. Mm-hmm. And it plays on so much of the gothic weirdness that we were sort of seeing back in Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. Um, you have uh, a, a boy who is sort of raised in this kind of naturalist, pantheistic type religion who butts heads with the Catholic Church. So mm-hmm. he's thrown into the well as a kind of John the Baptist figure. Um, but it's playing on a lot of the gothy gloominess that you find in, you know, literal gothic novels, like the gothic novels of the 18th century. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's what I thought was sort of interesting and evocative about it. And then we have the lines, uh, left upon a seat in a yew tree, which stands near the lake of Eastway, uh, sorry, of Estway. And that's one that seems like a run-up to Tintern Abbey. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about a sort of like solid uh, – the the narrator, the speaker is urging um, a traveler to sit and rest under this tree and to contemplate <laughs> sort of the carvings into the tree. But what happens is the carvings were left there by someone who was kind of like a natural rustic genius, but who instead of finding, finding the interconnectedness with all things, um, gets so entranced with the beauty without that he becomes a solipsist, uh, which mm-hmm. was this kind of romantic fear. Um, it says he was one who owned no common soul in youth, uh, by genius nursed and big with lofty views. He to the world went forth pure in his heart against the taint of dissolute tongues, against jealousy and hate and scorn against all enemies prepared, all but neglect. And so his spirit damped at once with rash disdain, he turned away and with the food of pride sustained his soul in solitude. Okay, so that would seem like, you know, this, this, uh, I guess, benevolent Wordsworthian figure, you know, who goes out and sustains themselves in solitude. But hang on, stranger, these gloomy boughs had charms for him. And here he loved to sit, his only visitants a straggling sheep, the stone chat or the glancing sandpiper. And on these barren rocks with juniper and heath and thistle thinly sprinkled o'er, fixing his downward eye, he many an hour a morbid pleasure nourished, tracing here an emblem of his own unfruitful life. And lifting up his head, he would then gaze on the more distant scene. How lovely tis thou seest, and he would gaze till it became far lovelier and his heart could not sustain the beauty still more beauteous. Nor that time would he forget those beings to whose minds warm from the labors of benevolence the world and man himself appeared a scene of kindred loveliness. Then he would sigh with mournful joy to think that others felt what he must never feel and so lost man on visionary views would fancy feed till his eyes streamed with tears in this deep veil he died, this seat his only monument. He becomes a kind of like solipsist of the the, the spirit. Mm-hmm. He becomes so sort right, of uh, – yeah, go ahead. Well, I thought the uh, kind of the most telling term used in there was emblem of his own unfruitful life. Uh-huh. Like clearly like, you know, you, you like what is the point of having such a great spirit 
this, you know, tremendous, you know, well of, of, of spirit in you. If all it does is you, know, you, you enter the world and instead see that like, well, it's, it's, it's not even worthy coming into contact with my great and bounteous spirit within. You know? Exactly. <laughs> there's not, there's not much, you know, is that greatness of spirit? I mean, of course, a Wordsworth here is saying, well, no, it's not. Yeah. So it's, it's that inward turn or it's an inwardness that, mm-hmm. you know, is, is threatening. And then it sort of comes with the moral, if thou be one whose heart the holy forms of young imagination have kept pure, stranger, henceforth be warned and know that pride, however disguised in so majesty is littleness, that he who feels contempt for any living thing hath faculties which he has never used, that thought with him is in its infancy. So, you know, it's, it's, it, it kind of goes to, um, you know, rhyme of the ancient mariner in a way. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, you're sort of pridefully, distancing yourself out from everyone and everything and losing yourself in your own solipsistic vision. So I would, I would see this as a kind of, uh, this is a bit of a broadside against the concept of mysticism itself. Yeah. Right. Like a kind of, um, like you're not going the, the, the inward turn. Right. I mean, and that's, you know, mystic and mysticism are of course very vague and broad terms. Right. (laughs) uh, But, you know, I I think something you might say that, you know, everything that we call mystic, you know, all the, all the traditions that we refer to as mystic have in common this notion of the inward turning that the, that the path to transcendence is one of contemplation within and, and abstract using abstracted forms to, to find that. And yeah, here's Wordsworth just saying like, well, no, you're just kind of playing with yourself. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting because in the previous poem, the, the sort of tragic hero was the boy who was tossed in the well for doing the same mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's sort of like, this is the, the, the counterbalance in some way, you know, you, you have to be very, very cautious about that. I mean, I think we already talked about this at, at one point, but Byron in Lord Juin, Okay. Yes. 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 It's pronounced Juan. All right. We all know that. And Byron, <laughs> not the Byron, Spanish, <laughs> but Byron also pronounced it Jewin, and we know because he rhymes Jewin with new one. Um, right. Right. But he in Don Juin, um, when when Juin first uh, comes to understand um, sexuality, he mm-hmm. he. He's so repressed, like his mother has kept biology from him to such a degree that he doesn't know what's going on and he doesn't even know that he's being aroused by this young woman, um, who's, you know, five years older than he is. And she's the wife of this old ugly dude. And so she knows what she's doing, but Juin doesn't quite get it. And it's all sort of innocent until it's not. And so he is wandering in the, the forest and it's this great moment of, um, Byron basically mocking Coleridge and Wordsworth because Juin is wandering through the forest expostulating on, um, all kinds of transcendental metaphysics until he just can't stop thinking of, uh, Donna Julia. Um, 
what what Byron is getting at there is that all of this, you know, as you said, mysticism, it literally is just playing with yourself. It's sexual <laughs> repression. It's a form yeah, of masturbation. Yeah. And it's it's just interesting that that Wordsworth here, you know, on the heels of I guess we're talking about how they structured the volume on the heels of Coleridge's, you know, sort of meditation on that, the, the punishment for that inward turn. He has this other kind of punishment for that inward turn, which would be solipsism, the, the, the mm-hmm. cutting yourself off from all of the social. So he doesn't need to be thrown down a well. He throw himself down a well. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm almost seeing this as a kind of, um, and I'm sure as, <laughs> as with all my observations, I'm sure none of them are very fresh and have been gone over many times in the, uh, in the critical literature. It seems to me that, uh, yeah, it seems to me that the, uh, that Wordsworth is in conversation with himself over the dangers of the contemplative life, you know, yeah. like it, it's, it, it's one of sort of feeling out the, feeling out the, 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 the borders and the range of it and like finding a, a, I guess what we might call a raised path through this sort of deceptive morass almost. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and it, it comes up again in, in other, the romantics, I hate to keep branching out here, but in Percy Shelley's Alistair or Alastair, uh, the, that sort of idea of the romantic hero quester is ultimately being a solipsist is front and center. And Shelley most likely was satirizing Wordsworth and satirizing that turn. Mm-hmm. Um, he sort of exoticizes the quest in certain ways. And Alastair is a, uh, it's a fun poem. It's, it's, you know, <laughs> the exoticizing is fun to read, but it, it really is, you know, the search for the feminine spirit within the perfect twin to this soul. And it just becomes this dude hiding out in a cave, masturbating. <laughs> uh, we're back to Goethe again. My God. <laughs> Goethe and Montaigne, who would have guessed? Those are our, the two most enduring cannoneers. Oh. <laughs> All right. So the nightingale. Uh, by Coleridge, I found to be kind of this, this interesting poem about sort of thwarting the tropes of, mm-hmm. of poetry and sort of pointing to their artificiality. And it's trying to make a case for, um, I guess what later critics are going to critique the romantics for doing, sort of burying the rhetoric or burying the rhetorical turn. Um, I, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not quite sure. You know, after having spent time with the poems in this way and sort of looked around at what else was on the scene that I, I still buy this argument. I, I, I buy it to a degree, but you know, the, the argument goes that the, the romantics tried to claim that they were not, they were not rhetoricians. They were presenting the real as real. And so yeah. there's this attempt to get out of the falsification of rhetoric. But if you're writing, then necessarily you're involved in the rhetorical process. And I think it's pretty clear that most of these poems are written as argument poems. Um, they're sort of observation arguments sort of to put you in the place of, Hey, okay, what do you make of this? I, I think, mm-hmm. um, Garner and Porter do a really great job in the intro of pointing to the way that so many times these poems 
draw the reader in. There's a sort of direct address to the reader to come mm-hmm. in and, and okay, I'm presenting the scene, but you make meaning out of it. Right. And, yeah, and yeah. we're being called to engage, but courage here is sort of playing with that back and forth because, um, he's, he's questioning the very idea that the song of the, the nightingale is a melancholy song. It says mm-hmm. most musical, most melancholy bird, a melancholy bird. Oh, idle thought in nature. There's nothing melancholy <laughs> like, yo, bird can't think. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's kind of silly to think that, that the bird has these kinds of feelings when what is the bird doing when it's singing? It's calling to a mate or, or, you know, contesting its territory or, right. or doing something I was gonna, other. I was going to say, if, if anything, I think birds are sanguine, 201. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing melancholy about it. Yeah. They're always out trying to get laid or start a fight. <laughs> Well, that's, that's kind of Coleridge's point. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, there's, uh, sorry, this is a, a really stupid digression. It makes me think of, um, John Waters. I think it's in Pink Flamingos. One of the, the characters is disgusted with nature. It's one of the, the, it's either Pink Flamingos or, uh, Female Trouble. One of the characters mm-hmm. is disgusted with the natural world and, and he looks out and says, think of all those birds in the tree just shitting and fucking. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's kind of what's going on, right? Yeah. And, and that's what, what, what Coleridge sort of, well, in less vulgar terms, that's what he sort of points us to. Um, he, he talks about how, uh, you know, by sun or moonlight to the influxes of shapes and sounds and shifting elements surrendering his whole spirit of his song and of his fame forgetful. So his fame should, uh, share in nature's immortality, a venerable thing. And so his song should make all nature lovelier and itself be loved like nature. Right. So this is what the song is. You got to go outside at night to experience it, but it's yet another beauty of the natural world, even if it's at night, even if it is at this sort of darkened time. This is, but twill not so, and youths and maidens most poetical who lose the deepening twilights of the spring in ballrooms and hot theaters, they still full of meek sympathy must heave their sighs or Philomela's ple- uh, pity pleading strains. All right. So. Um, he's sort of critiquing all these indoor poets who don't get outside and just rely on the old myth of Philomela and the melancholy myth of, you mm-hmm. know, the, the trauma that produces the nightingale in its song. He's like, this is nonsense. And then he sort of ends with this description of dragging his son out. Well, he calls it a love chant. Okay. Um, but then he ends with this, uh, description. Of, of, you know, waking up his son in the middle of the night and going out and hanging and listening to the birds. It says, and I deem it wise to make him nature's playmate. He knows well the evening star. And once when he awoke in most distressed, distressful mood, some inward pain had made up that strange thing, an infant's dream. I hurried with him to our orchard plot and he beholds the moon <clears throat> and hushed at once, suspends his sobs and laughs most silently. While it's his fair eyes that swam with undropped tears did glitter in the yellow moonbeam. Well, it is a father's tale, but if that heaven should give me a uh, life, his childhood shall grow up familiar with these songs that with the night he may associate joy. Right. Um, mm-hmm. it sort of turns into this, this, you know, casting, it, it, it starts with this kind of like castigation of the falsification of experience or, or the, the, the turning of experience into artifice. 
And then this exploration of bringing a sun out into the world at night so that night can also be a source of joy, sort of like psychological association. And so what I thought was, was fascinating there was this kind of like argument, and I would call it a rhetorical argument, against the um, a, a certain kind of aestheticization. Mm-hmm. You know? um, and and it, as a dude who just went out with his sons to test out their new light-up sneakers and just go running through the neighborhood in the middle of the night, it kind of hits home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, that was something I really, uh, yeah, I really, uh, it really rang true with me as well. And, and partly because like, um, I don't know that anyone would, d- would describe it as melancholy or whatever, but, uh, there's, so here's, here's a little, here's a little slice of life from central Alabama. Um, we don't have where I live. Uh, I'm in the County. I'm not, uh, I'm not within any, any municipal boundaries. So we don't have recycling pickup. Uh, so we do keep all our recyclables in some bins and there's a public drop off that you can drive out to. Mm-hmm. And this actually just so happens to be on the same road that, uh, on the, the house I grew up is on. Uh, it's, uh, right next to where they built a, uh, a big new, uh, stadium for high school football. Um, and so part of that complex, there's this, uh, there's the, uh, the public recycling drop offs. Now, mm-hmm. Typically what I'll do is, uh, after I've, you know, put my, put my kid to bed, mm-hmm. uh, one night a week, I'll, I'll drive out there to, to drop off the recycling. And, uh, over the summer I've been, I've noticed it somehow it always ended up that like, I typically would be dropping it off on nights where it was cool, but humid. And I could see lightning storms down the valley one way or the other. Mm-hmm. And it's also, it's in this low area neck nearby a Creek. And so the, the whole the whole world is just filled with the sounds of singing tree frogs and they're all just singing away. And I, mm-hmm. and I'm dropping off. I'm here, you know, <laughs> pulling trash out of my car and walking it over to sometimes there's like a lacrosse game going on or something, you know, like with folks here, the buzz of the fluorescent lights around a stadium and whatever, but I can see these flashes of lightning and I can hear these frogs and just my heart, is just filled to bursting with love for this land that I live in, this yeah. place. Uh, and it, and I, and I, I don't know if I'm just getting so much more sentimental in my, in my old age or, or what, what it is, but there's something about like, you know, cause if you just describe it it's like, Oh, running to take recycling and dumping it over by the dumpsters next to the high school football field, <laughs> it sounds ugly. It sounds dismal, but, it, but it's not. I mean, every, every time there's something wonderful in it. There's something that touches it, either the feel of the, of a, of, of the wind as I, as I, you know, I'm walking the trash over. I hear these tree frogs who I, who I just, I love to bits. And, yeah. and I, I so I, it really, it really rang true to me. <laughs> yeah. There, there is something that I think these poems do that sort of like turn your focus towards something else. Mm-hmm. That's that's what I sort of found rereading them. That it does make you focus on, I guess, the overlooked parts of the environment around you. You know, I thought I I find that to be a a, a very valuable thing, a very precious thing, to just mm-hmm. stop and look. Um, and I guess that gets us to the first of these sort of poems of observation, the female vagrant. Yeah. Yeah. Um, This one, this one was pretty fascinating to me. This one really, 
this one really struck a chord for me because I recall if it, listeners, of course, loyal listeners will recall that I had a, a lot to say about uh, enclosure and industrialization and the demise of the English village when we did our kind of uh, table setting episode for the lyrical ballads. And boy, this was one where that was, that's, was just at the fore. Yeah. The whole, the whole narrative. Um, uh, Cause it's a, it's like a story. And again, this is one that's like, it's this interesting kind of um, this parenthetical approach to introducing the speaker in these poems, which yeah. I guess is because we are, we are assuming that the speaker is Wordsworth or Coleridge, I guess, or, you know, words, Cole, Coleworth or something. Yeah. Like some sort <laughs> of like authorial voice, unless otherwise specified. Right. Um, so this one starts off uh, by Derwent's side. My father's cottage stood and in parentheses, the woman, thus her artless story told close mm-hmm. parentheses. One field, a flock, and what the neighboring flood supplied to him were more than mines of gold. Light was my sleep, my days in transport rolled. With thoughtless joy, I stretched along the shore, my father's nets, or watched when from the fold high o'er the cliffs, I led my fleecy store, a dizzy depth below, his boat and twinkling oar. So setting a, and also I would think like artless is not quite, you know, the narrative is not artless whatsoever, but maybe that's right. The poet it, it, has has helped her along. Yeah. <laughs> and it's this kind of claim that this is unadorned, right? Or it's not. Okay. Yeah, that's artless less in the sense of ugly and unfashioned, but rather artless in in the sense of guileless. Yeah, which is also okay. goes back to that claim that this isn't a rhetorical performance, even though, you know, it is a rhetorical Clearly performance. Clearly it is, yeah. Uh, observation, yeah, yeah. even if it is observation where you tell the reader, okay, just pay attention, is still a rhetorical performance. Yeah. But yeah, um, so her, her father loses the land. He's kind of bullied out of it. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Yeah. And is then, um, right. So, uh, there's, uh, oh yeah, here we go. I thought this was very uh, evocatively done. Uh, then rose a mansion proud our woods among, and cottage after cottage owned its sway. No joy to see a neighboring house or stray through pastures not his own, the master took. My father dared his greedy wish gainsay. He loved his old hereditary nook, and ill could the eye the thought of such sad parting brook. But when he had refused the proffered gold, <clears throat> to cruel injuries he became prey, sore traversed in whatever he bought and sold. His troubles grew upon him day by day, till all his substance fell into decay, his little range of water was denied, all but the bed where his old body lie, all, all was seized, and weeping side by side, we sought a home where we uninjured might abide. And and there, of course, folks, you have enclosure, the um the expulsion of traditional tenants and the traditional sort of village life, uh sacrificed at the altar of the the landlord's whim or yeah. his uh his desire to find a more profitable use for this land where these peasants happen to live and have been living forever and, and really love. It's the well it's it's the I mentioned at the top of the show the kind of setting up for Tolkien's um, nostalgia for an England, which may or may not have ever existed. Right. And this is the England, which is, which died that yeah. Tolkien mourns. Um, and, uh, the, but the rest of the, the kind of the narrative is one of, uh, just, you know, catastrophe that eventually the, um, the, the woman narrating, she and her husband have to, uh, they, they have to emigrate to a town 
which is, you know, you know, there you go. That's the creation of the English working class right there. Like yeah. you're kicked off your land. So what else can you do? You go to a town and try to find some work, um, which, you know, the grind doesn't work there and they eventually are. And I guess the way I know, Claude, you could maybe clarify it read to me like they were either emigrating purposefully or were transported to Australia um, I, or some kind of far overseas British settlement. I'm not quite sure. Uh, I sort of took it as the new world. Mm-hmm. Just yeah, because, it does. Yeah. Just because it sounds like they were attacked by pirates. Right. Right. I, and I'm not, yeah, I'm the, not trying to be, I'm not trying to be glib or stupid. It, it really does sound as if they were raided. Mm-hmm. Um, in some capacity, yet does that burst of woe congeal my frame when the dark streets appeared to heave and gape while like a sea the storming army came and fire from hell reared his gigantic shape and murder by the ghastly gleam and rape seized their joint prey, the mother and the child. But from these crazing thoughts my brain escaped. For weeks the balmy air breathed soft and mild and on the gliding vessel heaven and ocean smiled. Uh, it, it, it sounds as if they, they were sort of engaged yeah. in some kind of martial raid and right. piracy was often a cover for, it, it was um international naval warfare by right. way like, of um i guess y- you by way of mercenaries you know pirates right this mercenaries. was a it was a very common kind of um accomplishing one's foreign policy goals through the use of violence theft and rapine uh, yeah. by hire, hiring it out uh, yeah. to, to privateers and, and whatnot. Yeah. 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 Um, it, it, but as it I guess seemed to me, oh, sorry, go ahead. no, it seemed to me that they go, maybe I've got too much of this in mind. They go to, and now to the seacoast with numbers more we drew, they go to some kind of seacoast mm-hmm. town. And then from there out to somewhere else, they're foul neglect for months and months. We bore not, nor yet the crowded fleet at anchor stirred. Green fields before us and our native shore by fever from polluted air incurred. Ravage was made for which no knell was heard. Fondly we wished and wished away nor knew mid that long sickness and those hopes deferred that happier days we never more must view. The parting signal streamed and at last the land withdrew. Uh, that's such a weird way of saying they got on a boat. At last the land withdrew. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's, I mean, it's as if the, the, the earth itself is going away. But from well, the that's, latest, and it, yeah, it's ahead. also, it, it, uh, it centers the, the vagrant woman. Like yeah. It's, this is, this is, she is the, is the pole and, and all of this is, everything moves in relation to her. Yeah. Uh, in a way. Yeah. So it, it's not quite clear to me where they go. I hadn't been thinking mm-hmm. of, of Australia, but, um, it might I mean, be, I, I thought it was the Atlantic was, because I'm, I'm, I realized I was basing my Australia theory on a misreading of a word. Uh, where in the stanza where it starts, uh, but from delay, the summer calms were passed yeah. on as we drove the equinoctial deep. Right. I realized I read that as equatorial. So I, uh-huh. okay. <laughs> so I thought they were crossing the equator okay. to then reach whatever, wherever they were going. Okay. Cause <laughs> anyway, so I, it, anyway, it, it struck me that they were perhaps <clears throat> going for, for the new world, maybe the Caribbean, maybe, mm-hmm. 
um, you know, the, the American South or something like that, but whatever happened, um, it seems they were raided. Eventually she, her, her whole family is killed and she gets on a boat and gets taken back, but she's sort of robbed of a reason. She has no connections left. She gets taken up with a group of, um, I guess travelers, what, you know, if you'll pardon the slur and I understand that it is a slur, but what Mm -hmm. would have been called at the time gypsies. Um, she gets taken up with this group that are sort of like, uh, homeless travelers who, uh, break into people's houses and steal a bunch of things and she can't bring herself to do that. So she's, She's cast out. She has nowhere to go and she just kind of breaks off. She says, three years of wander often have I viewed in tears the sun towards that country tend where my poor heart lost all its fortitude. And now across this moor, my steps I bend. Oh, tell me whither for no earthly friend have I. She ceased and weeping turned away as if because her tale was at an end. She wept mm-hmm. because she had no more to say of that perpetual weight, which on her spirit lay as if her tale was at an end. Mm-hmm. I mean, the horrible suggestion is that she's going to survive. Yeah. Like she's going to go that on. That there's, there's more, there's more calamity to be had. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's what I was calling a poem of observation because it doesn't, it doesn't have like a clear point. It's just look, mm-hmm. listen, bear witness. Right. Right. You know, it doesn't have a call to, to action. It doesn't have a, a, a sort of moral at the end, like Simon Lee seems to have. Mm-hmm. It's just, this is, and, and that's really heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This was, this was one of the ones that, uh, that affected me most. And yeah. I, and and it might be just that, that that kind of bearing witness, and I know that's kind of a um, you know you mentioned that it, it doesn't have any kind of call to action or anything. It's just there for you to bear witness to and 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 have this kind of misfortune in mind, and it does bring to mind the kind of despair or a a a, a critique of what a lot of political energy tends toward in, especially in the United States of America in the 21st century, where it does seem like the best any political formation is going to offer you. If you, if you do have an interest in the, the suffering and exploitation and, and misfortune of people caught up in things that are beyond their control, that the best any political formation is going to do is to say that they see that that's happening to you and acknowledge it. Yeah. And that's all that, and then that's all the word. And so the, 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 this, this idea that that's, that's kind of the limiting horizon on, you know, quote unquote, you know, uh, uh, um, permissible mm. political engagement with misfortune born of political choices. Right. Uh, it, it, it sort of rang, it rang a bit of a bell. Yeah. <laughs> and it's interesting that that kind of, but there is that kind of the tradition of the, the bearing witness and, and there is something more. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, 
fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And which is honestly, which is also not to denigrate it, because I think, of course, one must have some idea, right? Like it, yeah. you, 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 you don't have the limited and flawed <laughs> progressive movement of the early 20th century without how the other half lives. Right. You know? Right. Um, but it still is a kind of like, well, well, it's, you know, kind of calling back to the kind of the, the solipsism of earlier. Like there's, there's also a tendency toward inertness in it that you, you, you just take it in rather than, you know, find the fulcrum to move right. something. And I, I mean, I do wonder what, what can be done in those moments. Mm -hmm. And then we have our tales from the crypt story. Here's Goody Blake and Harry Gill. (laughs) It is a real switch up. I I think that's interesting. Also, you brought up the tale of Simon Lee and that's one that I think has a lot of, it kind of, sorry to use this expression, it rhymes with the vagrant woman. Um, It's sort of in the same wheelhouse, but it is, like instead of connecting them directly, we have yeah, that's sort of the uh, the tales from the crib, Goody Blake, and then a cute poem about a kid. <laughs> yeah, a kid going. But anyway, to tell, continue. Uh, yeah, it's 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 really very strange. Simon Lee matches up with the female vagrant, which matches up with a thorn, which matches up with um, the mad mother, which mm-hmm. matches up with. Like it, 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 it's kind of like a line with all these things, but they keep being disrupted by, okay, so lines are in a small distance from my house and sent by my little boy to the person to whom they are addressed. <clears throat> it's the speaker writing to his sister. So this is a common Wordsworthian thing. He was very close to his sister and she sort of helped him around the house. Uh, she mm-hmm. lived with them in the cottage. Um, it's, it's basically, all right, let's get out. It's a beautiful day. Get out here, put everything aside. You have to experience this. No joyless forms shall regulate our living calendar. We from today, my friend, will date the opening of the year. Love, now universal birth from heart to heart is stealing from earth to man, from man to earth. It is the hour of feeling. Now, I, I think a lot of times this gets taken as Wordsworth's, like, let's just put everything aside and just feel man and, and, you know, no more intellect. We're just, you know, emotional beings. I don't think that's actually what he's saying. This is an intimation of that kind of transcendentalism that comes full force in, mm-hmm. um, Abbey. That's what it starts to me. It's moving away from a kind of mechanical, um, <clears throat> a, a mechanical time, a mechanical state of being to a state of being that is, intuitively interconnected with all things in that kind of Buddhist way that, that he sort of gets at in Tintern Abbey. Um, 
One moment now may give us more than 50 years of reason. Our minds sh- shall drink at every pore the spirit of the season. Some silent laws our hearts may make, which they shall long obey. We, for the year to come, may take our temper from today. It's a kind of rejuvenation um, based on this interconnectedness that he feels in the moment and this desire to share it with someone he cares about. This, I think, is sort of like the positive side of um, <clears throat> the 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 earlier poem that was sort of like centered on solipsism, because this mm. is a desire to share with others and to feel with others. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I, I, that seems extraordinarily important to Wordsworth, the fact that um, when we reach these transcendental heights, we can't do it individually, but it has to be an interconnectedness mm-hmm. of beings and people with people. It's it's not antisocial. He doesn't right. want to make it antisocial. You know? Yeah. yeah. And then we have Simon Lee. <laughs> yes, yes. It's like, why, why disconnect these things? And so Simon Lee is another one of these, uh, it's sort of like an observational poem uh, about a man who used to work for the Lord and his, his means of work are, are outmoded, outdated. Mm -hmm. And he's, he was never trained as a farmer, but as an old, 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 old man with very little strength left, uh, he has to basically make a subsistence living. Mm-hmm. So the narrator sees him trying to pull up a root one day or, you know, and uh, he can't, <clears throat> he can't do it. And it's got this very curious ending. One summer day, I chanced to see this old man doing all he could about the root of an old tree, a stump of rotten wood. The mattock tottered in his hand. So vain was his endeavor that at the root of the old tree, he might've worked forever. <clears throat> You're overtasked, Simon Lee. Give me your tool, Tim, I said. And at the word, right gladly, he received my proffered aid. I struck, and with a single blow, the tangled root I severed, at which the poor old man so long and vainly had endeavored. The tears into his eyes were brought, and thanks and praises seemed to run. So fast out of his heart, I thought they uh, never would have done. I've heard of hearts unkind, kind creeds, with coldness still returning. Alas, the gratitude of men has oftener left me mourning. Mm. There, you know, I, I'm grateful to the introduction to this edition <clears throat> that they point out that this is a very strange moment that we may not know how to read. There, there, there are multiple interpretations of this happening all at once. Mm-hmm. Um, is Simon Lee actually glad that someone intervened? Was the intervention uh, a positive intervention? Is this uh, a sort of imposition into the life and dignity of this man, or mm-hmm. is this man really so grateful that um, it, it breaks the heart of the narrator? All of these these interactions are contained therein, and what's complicated is that the the poem wants us to make a, a, a sort of moral observation but a clear observation of what occurred is, is really kind of beyond us. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah. I, I, I had that more or less straightforward reading of like the, the narrator being almost sort of taken aback by the effusive gratitude of Simon Lee and, and I, and, and sort of in reflecting on it, recognizing 
you know, I, I guess, you know, thinking like, you know, left in mourning, like thinking about God, what would my life have to be like for someone just doing this little thing to mean that much to me? And then that sort of welling up as this, as this feeling of mourning. But, uh, I, I realize now, like as 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 is typically the case for me, that's a very naive reading, a very <laughs> superficial well, one. <laughs> no, I I don't know, and I might be overcomplicating this. I just I, again, we're talking about uh, past reading interfering into the present reading. You know, I, sure. I think of Don Quixote and every time Don Quixote right. tried to, <laughs> um, when when he tried to stop the the whipping of the, this kid who context tells us really was a thief. Um, you know, it, it goes wrong in five different kinds of ways at once. Um, you know, what is it when we intervene in into someone else's life? I try to be very, very okay. Mm-hmm. As a teacher, I try to be very, very careful of that. You know, um, if I'm concerned about a student and I show too much attention, then that becomes a kind of you know, negative intervention. If I show no attention, then that also can be, you know, a damaging thing. I, I, I have to think very clearly about how best to engage or if I need to engage or, or you know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. what do we do when we enter into the lives of others and assume that we can do something, you know? Yeah. But, but this from a person who, who, thinks himself to death. Um, and then we have the anecdote for fathers. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Another a cute little story about uh, little kids. <laughs> yeah. So we have a cute little story about little kids, which is about um, how the speaker's son wants to live um, in the place where he is now because there was no weather vane and he likes to look at the weather vane. <laughs> Even yeah, though the other yeah. place was cool. And then we are seven, which is a similar tale as simplicity of children, mm-hmm. but much darker because it's about this little girl who keeps saying, uh, I have seven brothers and sisters when a whole bunch of them are dead and she doesn't recognize the difference between what it means to be living and dead. Mm-hmm. They're still alive to her. Right. right. She still, she visits there where they're buried and she knows that they're buried there. You know, she, she, you know, talks to them Yeah, <laughs> when they're, yeah, it's uh it, it is, it's a very, um, it's, I don't want to say bleak because it's really not in a way. Right. I mean, it's, it's naive, but I think also there's that, well, there's that, um, well, the transcendental angle of, you know, well, these, these people were your brothers and sisters at one point in your life, they'll never stop being your brothers and sisters, even though they, you know, they may be dead. And, and of course this, you know, a, a little girl, you know, in, in the, and the poem does not clearly does not quite grasp what that difference between living and dead is. But I, I, I would say that I think part of the poems point, if you will, is that, in the fullness of time, there maybe there isn't that much difference between living and dead anyway. Right. Right. You know, like we're, we're, we're all of us, you know, we all have a very small amount of time where we're with each other. Right. So as long as you're still around, then the time that you had shared with somebody else is still around in its way. Uh, 
because those, you know, when in, zooming on back, like I said, in the fullness of time, it's all doesn't really, <laughs> it's, it's all kind of the same amount of time in a way. Um, yeah. but Absolutely. it's, it's another, it's another kind of from the wisdom of, you know, from the mouths of babes kind of, uh, kind of, kind of deal, which, uh, which happens a lot. In lyrical yeah. ballads, which is not really what I was expecting. I, I can't tell you why I didn't expect it necessarily, but the, the, you know, thinking back now, of course, like, you know, children and, and the wisdom of, of babes is, of course, a, a, a kind of a deep vein to right. draw from when you're, when you're sort of setting out on a project like this. But I was really kind of, um, I was surprised and, and enjoyed just how much like Wordsworth clearly like, really enjoys kids and talking to his kid and talking about his sweet little boy and how much Edward rules. You know, it's like, it's like, yeah, man, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. It seems to come from observation. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then we have the lines written in early spring, which are these, you know, it's, it's a very hopeful poem about, you know, if these thoughts may not prevent, if such be of my creed, the plan, have I not reason to lament what man has made of man? Um, when you go out and have those moments of blissful reconnection, it does make you sad that we just seem intent on destroying each other. Mm-hmm. And then we have the thorn. <laughs> yes. uh, so this yes. one hit you pretty hard, huh? It did. And um, in kind of a number of ways. So the thorn is... I think for one, it's very, it's very interesting. And, and you could, you could probably give me a little more insight into the poetical aspects of this. So most of these poems, they have clear stanzas, but they're not like numbered stanzas. Mm-hmm. Um, or some stanzas will be, will be very long or they're, they're clear, like, you know, sections and segments. And the thorn is one of the longer poems, but it is, I think other than, uh, other than the rhyme of the ancient mariner, it's the only one broken out into uh, numbered stanzas. Mm. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but the thorn is a a poem where our our our, our narrator, our sort of point of view voice, is uh, out on a, of course, a melancholy hilltop somewhere, mm. <laughs> like and you do. finds like you do, and finds an interesting spot. It's this, you know, particular place on the, on the, the mountain where there's a, a tenacious kind of thorn bush is growing next to a pool, a small pool and a little tufted hillock of moss. Mm-hmm. And I think he's, you know, it, it says at first like, Oh, it could be the grave of an infant, but no infant grave could be this pretty. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and the, and so, of course, it it comes to pass that there is a woman who comes up to that 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 place uh, every night and 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 weeps and moans and cries. Oh misery! Oh misery! Oh woe is me! Oh misery! And it comes to pass that our narrator finds out that this was a woman who had been engaged to be married to a man, uh, a, a low down, dirty dog, who ran off. To marry another maid after he had already impregnated her. Um, so there's, it's, it's, and it's left ambiguous as to whether this was an infanticide or was it, you know, a miscarriage or stillbirth? I, I, I think that's, I'm right, right? That's left ambiguous, right? Like I, I read this and I don't think it's ever really explicitly 
Yeah, it's said to be an infanticide. It's it's hinted it could it could go either way. Some yeah. say it's one, some say it's the other, and then you know there's this weird occurrence um, at the the site, uh, which may be supernatural or may not be supernatural, but it, mm-hmm. it, we can't know for certain the the specifics of you know the cause of this this death if there even was a death mm-hmm. right yeah yeah that's yeah it, it is really i think the last um and the kind of the last three stanzas i think are yeah. the real it's the real punch um where uh the 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 point of view you know the poet says i've heard the scarlet moss is red with drops of that poor infant's blood but kill a newborn infant thus i do not think she could some say if to the pond you go and fix on it a steady view the shadow of a babe you trace, a baby in a baby's face, and that it looks at you. Whene'er you look on it, tis plain, the baby looks at you again. And some had sworn an oath that she should be brought to pub, she should to public justice brought. And for the little infant's bones with spades, they would have sought, but then the beauteous hill of moss before their eyes began to stir. And for full fifty yards around the grass, it shook upon the ground. All, but all do still aver the little babe is buried there beneath that hill of moss so fair. Um, and that was really, I mean, that's kind of that, that intrusion of the supernatural again. Right. Right. Uh, and was one that was very, uh, was very affecting to me. Like I've, I've, it, it was, uh, you know, to, to, <laughs> to approach like, well, this, you know, this woman must be brought to justice. Justice must be done for this little infant. But to do that is an injustice to where right. this infant is now. It's, it would be a deeper injustice to this poor child, to this, this being. Yeah. Who, who has a, a, a who has a, an existence now. As this place, yeah, you know, to take that away, <laughs> and it's it, it comes up in in another Wordsworth poem, "The Ruined Cottage." What is the justice here, right? right. Like, what could you possibly do? Yeah, um, whether or not this baby was stillborn or whether or not he died, there's suffering. Mm. And, and who are we really to say that it is just suffering or unjust suffering? What seems to matter to him is, is just that the suffering is there. Not like, yeah, justice, you know, it's weird because in this poem and, and in a couple of other poems, I'm sort of anticipating later Wordsworth poems. There is this question of what the just action is. And there seems to be this thing in Wordsworth that says, just let it be Mm -hmm. sort of like accept and love and empathize and just let it, let it be because Mm -hmm. the, the worst thing you could do is make this kind of, even for the right intentions, your intervention would would be harmful here, right? Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. it's as you said. Like, even if you, you know, I'm sorry, it makes me go back to the stupid Simpsons quotes. Dig him up. <laughs> uh, right. Can't we have one community <laughs> meeting without digging up a corpse? 
Um, <laughs> you know, dig up his grave. Uh, but you know, what, what would that accomplish? What would any of this mm-hmm. really accomplish? Um, can we not let this person grieve? Can we not let this be? And, and he even frames, you know, I, I thought this was pretty craftily done. He frames the supernatural as the gossip of the town, right? Mm-hmm. So, so we both get it and don't get it. We get it filtered through hearsay. You know what I mean? It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's an interesting little trick, but it's, you know, how does it end? I cannot tell how this may be, but plain it is the thorn is bound with heavy tufts of moss that strive to drag it to the ground. And this I know full many a time when she was on the mountain high by day and in the silent night, when all the stars shone clear and bright, that I have heard her cry, Oh misery, oh misery, oh woe is me, oh misery. I, I can't really say. I, I don't know what the right thing to do is. All I know is mm-hmm. that there's this woman who goes up there and she's in pain. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, again, it's sort of like, what would you have us do? And for me, that was the, this, like the most heartbreaking part of so many of the poems in here. You know, there's that desire to do something, but what, what do you do? Yeah. Um, last of the flock. This is another one about sort of economic dwindling, um, <laughs> right? A shepherd who sells off his flock one by one until he's literally got the last one. And then, um, the dungeon, another extract from the same play as the foster mother. Hmm. And the, now was, yeah. was, uh, was that play ever actually published as a, as a whole piece? Um, I'm, well, I'm sure it has been now. Oh, okay. Um, but, but not, not in the, the lifetimes of the, uh, <laughs> I don't think so. Yeah. Unless, unless Coleridge published it at some point to make money because he needed it at the end. <laughs> he um, needed to pay those laudanum bills. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, in, in their own weird ways, both of them ended up, you know, pretty sad. Uh, Coleridge, you know, mm sort of trying to manage his addiction as best he could and Wordsworth yeah. as just a, a, an arch-conservative partisan hack. Um, you know, at, at least Coleridge's turn towards the conservative was bizarre. Uh, yeah. You know, he was yeah. advocating for rule by clarity and this weird kind of <laughs> mystical huh. theological sect that should guide the right. king, you know. At least that's interesting. Um, <laughs> I like that it's kind of like the, um, it's a bit like kind of the conspiracy theorizing about the uh, Jesuits, but he's saying like, no, we should do that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> conspiracy theory, but make it real. But uh, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, and then after that, you have the mad mother. I mean, there, there are all these poems about mothers and, and mm-hmm. children the mad mother and then the idiot boy and the idiot boy is um another one of the longer poems in here um yeah. the idiot boy uh you know wordsworth's term his times term not ours but um right this kid who either is developmentally delayed or he is deaf and can't speak well n- not deaf but mute he he can't mm-hmm. speak it's it's uncertain what exactly that means. 
And so um, <clears throat> his, his father is gone uh, somewhere and his mother is nursing a friend of theirs who's very sick and they don't think she'll last the night. And the only person they have to get the doctor is the idiot boy. And so she puts him on the pony and sends him out and says, just go out there, get the doctor and bring him back. And then he wanders off. So the mother goes looking for the doctor um, and then can't find the boy and is panicked and looking and looking and looking. And then the neighbor lady in the middle of the night starts feeling better and just gets up and says, you know, I got to find both of them and gets up and goes looking. And uh, they go and the idiot boy is just chilling. <laughs> He's just <laughs> hanging by a waterfall with the horse watching. And I, you know, as as a very anxious parent, this hit close to home. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, th- this was the one when I was reading it, I was really, really just, you know, this one was hitting me because, um, you know, just thinking about my son being out of my sight and mm-hmm. this is my son's, my, my older son, both of my kids, um, m- my older son is in kindergarten. My younger son is going to preschool for the first time. And it's a huge adjustment after the whole past, you know, two years. Um, this is very, very frightening. And I'm constantly worrying about, you know, whether or not my kids are okay. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was, it was tough to read this one because all of a parent's anxieties get, get elevated. And then at the end, everything's fine. And so I had, I had recourse to ask a friend of mine who is a romanticist, you know, what, what do you make of this? And she had this compelling insight. She said, her way of reading this is that the idiot boy is not the idiot boy. The idiot boy is, he's kind of got a better grasp of the situation, a better understanding of the situation than anyone else. Mm -hmm. And he knows that everything's going to be just fine. And so he's just chilling she sort of sees him as not really as possibly not even the quote unquote mental deficient that his town takes him for that Mm -hmm. they've projected onto him this, this mental disability that he just doesn't have. And he knows everything's going to be okay. So he just goes and hangs and watches the waterfall. (laughs) Yeah. Um, That was sort of her reading. And I I think there's, there's stuff in there to sort of warrant that it's, it's sort of like turning the tables on that, that anxiety, you know, um, when you get to the end, now Johnny all night long had heard the owls in tuneful concert strive. No doubt too, he the moon had seen, for in the moonlight he had been from eight, eight o'clock till five. And thus to Betty's question, he made answer like a traveler bold, his very words I give to you, the cocks did crow to who to who, and the sun did shine so cold. Thus answered Johnny in his glory, and that was all his travel story. <laughs> Where were you? What have you been? <laughs> uh, you know, I was hanging. Yeah. <laughs> it's almost like a uh, almost a shaggy dog story it, it it is in this weird way right it just has this kind of just this po- this long poem and it's it's got a just a a bathos ending <laughs> yeah. 
So then we have the meditation on the Thames and then the expostulation and reply. Uh, expostulation and reply and tables turned are sort of always, you know, linked together. These, mm-hmm. these two little ballads about, you know, uh, put the books down and go experience things for real. <laughs> Touch grass, we might say today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then we have the sketch about the old man traveling. And so this is an old man going to see his son who's in the hospital at Falmouth. And that's it. I mean, it's, it's mm-hmm. 20 lines, which are just like, Hey old man, where are you walking to? I'm walking to uh, Falmouth to see my son. He's sick. He's a mariner. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> it's another one of these sort of like observation poems. And then you have the complaint of a, of a forsaken Indian woman, this kind of poem about, again, another mother. I mean, mothers are, are so prevalent mm-hmm. in this volume. Yeah. Um, this poem about, you know, this supposed Native American, um, custom of leaving behind, you know, the people who can't go with you on the journey. Like if mm-hmm. they're sick or stranded, you leave them with just enough and say, Hey man, we got to go. If you can catch up, catch up. Yeah. And so this is a mother leaving her children behind dying. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, they, they seem to have their eyes on these particular kinds of situations. I mean, it's, it's become such a cliche trope. Won't someone think of the children, but that's, that's kind of sort of what, what they keep doing here. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. What is it to be a parent dispossessed when you have someone you have to care for and you can't do that? And I would, I would think that the time, this kind of places them in a, well, really it was, it was, it was a shift in thinking about children, which mm-hmm. had been like in, in Western Europe and in Britain specifically. Like it, it seems like there, there's, it's, I, and I don't want to, well, it, it'll make people seem like real monsters. Uh, <laughs> but, um, there's a kind of, oh, I forget which crank psychologist this was, but there was this guy <laughs> who had a theory about difference. You could, you could divide, you could periodize human history into, um, different periods of how people related to small children mm-hmm. so that you had the infanticide period of the ancient world and classical world. And then you had the kind of, uh, neglecting abuse period of the middle ages into the, into the early modern. And then you have the modern conception of parenting after that. And it was this contention that by you could period and that had, and the contention was that, that, you know, not, not unreasonably would conclude that like, well, a child growing up in these different societies would be psychologically very different. Right. You know, a, a sort of concomitant with how children were valued or viewed in these different phases. And then that affects how they behaved as adults. It's the kind of, it's the kind of theory that there's no way on God's green earth you could ever confirm or deny. So, <laughs> which means it's limited in the kind of what it can do. But I do think that there's something to be said for this idea of, um, well, there's definitely some, now that's something we can prove is that there was a distinct shift. In right. attitudes toward children and, and, and the valuing of children and the, and even the kind of like investing time and attention in children, <laughs> which was not always a guaranteed thing, but it started to become one. Um, 
kind of a little of, yeah, I guess beginning before these guys time, but that was a part of a, a shift in the culture. And I think it is interesting that that's one of their real hobby horses. That's one of their real, yeah. Think of the children. And yeah. that was kind of cutting edge <laughs> yeah. in a way that was, yeah. that was, that was a, a newer or at least, um, a kind of, it, it was, it was, it was a, a, a concept that was having a moment of flourishing at the mm. time. Absolutely. It, it, it's just such a fascinating thing that it's, <clears throat> it's typically mothers with children. It's, it's these speakers mm-hmm. talking to their sons, but when it's this observational poetic, it's usually mothers with children. I, I don't know mm-hmm. where to go with that. I'm sure a thousand dissertations have been written on that. It's just this <laughs> observation that I can make right now. And then we end with the convict, which apparently was so grim that they dropped it from subsequent editions. <laughs> um, but again, yeah. it's, it's another poem of witness of, of, you know, someone wishing they could have a second chance. Yeah. You know? Uh, and that gets us, you know, through the rest of the 1798 lyrical ballads. It's, it's interesting to me. Well, okay. The rest of it, aside from Tintern Abbey, which we're going to tackle on its, in its own episode. Mm-hmm. It really is interesting to me that the hints of the transcendental pantheistic stuff that really comes full force in Tintern Abbey are there. Mm-hmm. And Wordsworth isn't going full on transcendental yet. Like he's got other poems in the later volume that really sort of go full bore on that. Uh, but this sort of keeps to a kind of, I almost want to say naturalistic view mm-hmm. that it, it's much more interested in um, these sort of poems of witness or the kind of um, simple poems about, hey, mm-hmm. it's a nice day, let's go hang. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. Like some of the, the, the more famous ones really, really are, are they're not here yet. Which I thought yeah. was, was really kind of funny. The, some of the ones that I was expecting to see aren't here. And so I, I, I'm, I'm curious to see like what the, the full or, or what the, the later edition adds. Uh, let's put mm-hmm. it that way. I'm sort of anticipating where it's going to go and, and what it's going to do. So anyway, that's, that's, I guess where I, where I am with this. It, it was, it was an insightful read. It was an eye opening read to try to yeah. think through what it would have been like to read it at the time. And I think, we sort of did the historicizing, what you call the table setting one, where you know <laughs> I, I still stand by the argument that this isn't necessarily all that different from the other sort of rural stuff that was being produced at the time. Um, it just seems to have this this other kind of eye where it could go moralistic. It just pulls back. Mm-hmm. You know? And yeah. it's pushing at a little bit more than the bucolic, but it's not there yet. Yeah, yeah, clearly. Yeah. yeah. So, 
All right. Does that do as much justice <laughs> as we can to the 1798 volume aside from Tintern Abbey? I mean, I think so. But as always, I would urge our listeners to uh, read it for themselves. I mean, this is one that's really um, – this is one I think that is really rewarding for what I would call lunch break reading. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very like – you know, if you can, like it's – it's, it's the fall. It's cool enough. I mean, it's trying to, at least here in Alabama, um, <laughs> we're mm-hmm. still, we're still getting up to 80 during the day, but, uh, but we're getting there. It's, it's, it's the right kind of, you know, get yourself a, uh, I, I ended up actually just printing off the project Gutenberg has the 1798 <laughs> edition. I just printed it off and put some binder clips on that mamma jamma yeah. and, uh, would sit out on the bench, you know, on my lunch break at work and, and read a couple of poems and, you know, see, see for yourself. Uh, what we're, what we're talking about here, because there, there really is something, something else that I, I ended up doing and you've recommended it before Claude. And I wanted to tell you about this. (laughs) I read them aloud to myself Mm -hmm. and that is, has been, that has been the single most effective, like pro tip Mm-hmm. for comprehending poetry I have ever encountered in my life. And I want to thank you for that. <laughs> but you but it really is, it, you, know? you have to hear it. You have to hear it to hear the rhythms, to hear where things hit, to hear where, th- and as you're speaking it, like your, your rhythm modulates, like as you, you feel where you're, you feel where the language is speeding up and you feel where the language is taking a break and you feel the, uh, the rise and fall of it. Mm-hmm. It's really something. Um, I could not compare that. I don't, I don't know what other kind of, you know, poetry to compare it to. I don't know if Wordsworth and Coleridge are specifically spectacularly great at it. I'll Mm -hmm. just have to read more poetry to find out. But I was really affected by the experience of, of reading, uh, of, of reading these poems aloud, which is what they were intended for. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, that's how, that's how these kinds of works would be typically enjoyed a lot of the time is that this was something you would do like at a, you know, a dinner party or something. It was like, yeah. Oh, I've got the new, the, the, these new poems, let us read them. You know, like that was part of how they were experienced. And yeah. I would highly recommend that. So if you have a place you can go on your lunch break where you can <laughs> mutter to yourself <laughs> while you're reading, try it out. <laughs> or, or if you're in the city, you can just walk down the, the street doing that anyway. So you're all- yeah. Yeah. No one's, no one's going to hassle you. you no. Know. Oh man. Well, I think that sort of brings it to a close. So, so next episode we'll, we'll finish up the 1798 edition with a, a sort of close read of just 10 turn Abbey. Mm-hmm. And then we'll take a look at the, the 1800 edition to see sort of what's the difference. Like what did they do to this thing? Uh, yeah. they, they added a bunch to it, but they also rearranged some things. So you don't start off with, uh, rhyme of the ancient mariner and i'm still i'm still trying to get my head around that like is that a better choice is that a worse choice what what kind of choice is that but we'll see we'll see <laughs> all right so that's yeah. as much of lyrical ballads as i can do right now <laughs> hope you enjoyed <laughs> um you know please check out some of the other podcasts on the agora network and uh check out the agoraphobia that's the network's Halloween stuff. We've been really busy over there and you'll find some great, yeah. great um, shows. Just all of us got together with all kinds of weird observations that maybe are in our wheelhouse or maybe outside of our wheelhouse to just kind of, you know, play around with what it is to be in the spooky season. So keep checking <laughs> that out. All Absolutely. Right. So 
We'll see you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.